band. Um, It may have been like Nicodemus, where he was a man of influence. <coughs> Nicodemus was a Pharisee, <coughs> but nonetheless, he was a disciple. So he kind of was a disciple without letting everybody know he was a disciple. But he did open his home for this last meal that Jesus shared, uh, which was a Passover meal. And that would have occurred then on Thursday, April 2nd, 33 A.D., and he would have shared that meal with them. And then on early in the morning, which would have been Friday morning, <clears throat> he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was uh, arrested and then brought to trial before the high priest. And we're going to read about that. And then uh, brought before Pilate, and then he was scourged, and then he was crucified. And all that happened in a day, in a 24-hour day. Um, and we understand from biblical prophecy the significance of that, that Jesus was um, the sacrifice for our sins such that we could be delivered from bondage through blood into God's kingdom. And that that's what the Exodus story is about, that's what the Passover is about. So we understand all of that coming together in this, this moment of time. Um, so that's where we're at, actually. And John, as we read about in chapter 13, uh, the, that meal that they shared, and then after the meal, they get up to move, and they actually move through the area of where Barnabas' house was, which is in an area called Mount Zion today. A lot of people think of Mount Zion as the Temple Mount. It actually isn't. It's a, a mount that's very close, and the whole area is built up, so you wouldn't Today, if you're walking through there, you think it's just one big city, but there actually is some topographic features there where uh, you can actually discern different high spots or mounts. And so <clears throat> Barnabas' house was in Mount Zion, and he's walking from that house through the Temple Mount and actually probably goes to the Temple area um, and then out the Eastern Gate and down the Kidner Valley, and he is leaving uh, Jerusalem before his arrest. And that's when this account takes place in John 14, 15, 16, and 17. And then we know that he is arrested when we get to John 18. So that's kind of the, the picture of where we're at. I always start out with what's John about, and I'm not going to take a lot of time in that this morning, um, but I'm going to read for you the, the theme of John, because I said I would do it every week. Uh, you find the theme of John at the end, it's just a particular writing style that he has. If you read his writing, usually the, the organizational uh, thesis is put at the end rather than the beginning. Which So he would not have been a good uh, AP guy today. But anyway, uh, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in his book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's the, the critical central piece of what John wants us to take away. That's what he wants us to take away from the passages we're going to look at this morning. That it has to do with knowing, believing, and abiding. And I was on the way in this morning, and I was thinking uh, about what psalm I might share and things like that. And, uh, and then a couple of words came into my mind that I use frequently. One of them is to comprehend. Comprehend has to do with, with knowledge, right? So when you go to take your tests, as a high school student, you're uh, 
applying to college, you take a, an SAT test or an ACT test, and they have, uh, what they're measuring is they're measuring comprehension. And that's the ability to know, right? And, and not just re recite the fact, but actually use it in some subtle way so that you know that it's more than just um, head knowledge, but you've actually wrestled with that to the point where you understand what it means. And so that's comprehension. That's what it means to know. That's what John wants us to know. He wants us to know that Jesus is the Christ. And he wants us to believe, and that's apprehension. So you have comprehension, then you have apprehension. Apprehension is when you make something yours. So we use that word typically like when um, the security forces will apprehend the suspect, right? So something has occurred and people come in and they lay hold, they put hands on them and take them captive, right? That's what it means to apprehend. That's what it means to believe in a way that you're making that uh, which you comprehend yours. But then it doesn't end there. Jesus wants you to actually go a step further. He doesn't want you to just comprehend and apprehend. He wants that to impact your life, the way that you live. And so when we look at the personal ministry of Jesus, which we see starting uh, to really be laid out in chapter 13 of John, it's all about um, how we, as disciples, having comprehended that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing that we have had life in his name, so we've apprehended that and made it ours, um, how we should live. And he gave us a simple command. Does anybody remember what that command was? In 1334, Jesus says, A new command I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So there's something about the way that we walk with Christ, our abiding in Him, that so changes us and changes the world that we would recognize that as love, right? That's, that's the end point of application for us. There may be a lot of things we want to wrestle with to understand, to comprehend, and maybe even we're trying to take that apprehension to a greater level today to, to wholly own the message as Jesus is our Savior, personally, but also that we would learn to love. And so that's what Jesus is pouring out. He's pouring that out into the life of his disciples. And I'm going to go ahead and read through all 14 again, and I'm going to try and pick up where we left off, which I don't really remember where it was. So you're all going to have to remind me. It says, Do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. Where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? <clears throat> Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? 
He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him, because he abides with you, and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me, because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring you and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I go to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father... I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from there. So at that point, they're leaving that upper room, and they start their walk to the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus knows what's in front of them. I believe where we left off last week was uh, right around between verses uh, 11 and 15, which has to do with... Um, he who believes in me and the works, the works that I do, he will also do. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Does that sound about where we left off last week? I have a question. <laughs> sure. Fire. Well, um, so I've prayed this a lot. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. Well, I, all of those uh, apostles, 
excepting John, were in, ended up losing their life because of their faith. John, we tradition is he died of natural causes as opposed to being having his life taken from him. So just because it was uh, spoken in a context here doesn't mean that it doesn't have a broader application. That's the first thing I would say. So we would like to approach this. Is this a principle um, that we would want to understand and apprehend? Right? Uh, so what is a principle? A principle is a timeless truth. That means it's not bound in culture and it's not bound in time. It would be true from the beginning of time as it is in the end of time. So it's not something that's going to change. It's a timeless truth. Um, there are different kinds of principles. And you've heard me talk from time to time that there are what we call precepts or uh, commands. Right. So those are things that God speaks to us and um, it's a timeless truth when he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your mind, with all your mind. And that that's a command, and we understand that that's a timeless truth, and that um, that's the nature of that principle. There are also principles that are axiomatic. So an axiomatic principle would be like a proverb, where it says, bring up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. Well, how many in here have kids? <laughs> Okay, so is that always true? Is that a promise? No, it's an axiom. In other words, it's a general uh, way that things work in, the, in God's economy. So God has in the kingdom of God, in its perfection in heaven, you could, you could rest assured that that's exactly how things would go. You could almost take that as a promise. Because that's the way God designed things to work. However, we live in uh, God's kingdom in this world, which is through us into a broken world that does not know God and does not embrace Him as a king. And so in a broken world, there are going to be times when um, the world's economy clashes with God's economy. Or the world's ways clash with God's ways. In fact, much of what you see in literature is about the clash of the kingdoms. And so uh, we understand that that's the way that God designed it, but because of a broken world, that's not always true. And so a lot of times when we deal with issues of ethics, um, that's, that's, we call it situational, because we understand that we're in a broken world, it isn't the way it's supposed to be. And so we have to make judgments as to how to live in light of that. And so that would be an axiomatic principle. But then there are principles that are promises, and then there are principles that are examples, and then there are principles that are affirmations. When we read the Psalms, we get a lot of affirmations about who God is, his character. So we read about the character of God this morning and how that should encourage us, right? So it's a, it's a true, it's a timeless truth about who God is, so it's an affirmation. Well, in, in this particular instance, you're asking, is this axiomatic? Is it promise? Is it affirmation? Is it precept? So you're asking the kind of principle. And you're saying it can't be a promise because I saw my nephew, who I prayed for, die of cancer. Well, just look at all the disciples, right? At 11 of them, right. whatever died of murder's death. Mm -hmm. Do you think they didn't ask, you know, for help or somewhere along that way? So, so, I mean, mm -hmm. I guess, well, I'm just wondering how you deal well, with Well, yeah, so how do I deal with this? So this is where the rubber meets the road, right? This is where I live daily. 
where you live daily, um, what is the will of God? Because Jesus says, if you ask according to my will, what is the will of God? But he doesn't say that here. It is qualified later when he repeats it. He says, if you ask anything according to my will, well, okay, so 14. Whatever you ask, yeah, my name, that I will do so that you do it. So, yep. um, and if we go on and, and read where this is repeated, it, it's a, if you're in accord with God. In other words, if I want a Mercedes, now I wouldn't want to have a Mercedes, by the way. Um, they're pretty, they're pretty nice, nice ride. Um, if I wanted one that never broke down and never ran out of gas, Right? So now I'm, I'm way out there in the supernatural. Um, and I pray to God for that. Is that in accord with God's will? No, it's in accord with the world's will. It's not in accord with God's will. So accord means to be in alignment with. And we are to be in alignment with God. So when it, you know, I, I give you the thesis, that last piece there has to do with abiding means to be connected to the mind. Um, and that means that you're drawing your life from there, that all that your life is about is about the fruitfulness of the mind. And you're in accord with the will of God. What was What is the, pre, um, the, the single most, from Revelation that we have, the single most important aspect of God's will as it relates to humanity? Pardon? To know Jesus Christ. Why is it important that he would know, or that we would know the Son? Is it because God has an ego problem and he needs to be known and, and worshipped? That's right, because he is the way, the truth, and the life. God's single most important aspect of will, as it is expressed from the very beginning of Revelation, is that that which is separated from him, that he loved so dearly, would come back into communion with him. That he created us to walk with him and to talk with him and delight in him. Because that's who he is. He is love. He is goodness. And he wants to not just hold that to himself, but to share it and to give it. He wants to give life. And what we find is that the world is in exactly the opposite place. They would rather have me focus on a Mercedes than focusing on the Son of God. And what I can say is that we live in a broken world. So that means there are going to be times when the will of God is, is that I be eternally with Him. And that means that I'm going to have to shed corruptible um, flesh for incorruptible. That means that God actually wills at, at some level that and takes joy in me coming into his presence which from the world's perspective is really negative I'm shedding my flesh right but I read in the Psalms that it's precious in the sight of the Lord the death of his righteous because that means that they're dwelling with him we even read that in Psalm 27 this morning right what was the psalmist's heart one thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Right? And that's not just a temporal life. That's an eternal life. That's what God's will is. So when I come across these things, and I do, um, I've had, I've, 
in, in my role as an, an avocational pastor, I've uh, officiated memorial services and things like that. And when I come to a believer's memorial, I always want to emphasize um, that not the, the moment of death, but the moment of life. And that God gave his son that we would have life. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. And so I'll usually share it in John chapter 11. Because what is precious is the eternal life. Now, when I lose, and in your case, you lost a very precious nephew, and I have lost him in my life too, um, that hurts. But that's why I want to, as the psalmist said, right, he said, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So that's what that's about. So we need to understand, first, we have to be in accord with God's will, which means that our understanding of life, the universe, and everything is not the end. God's understanding of life, the universe, and everything is the end. And in fact, it says that Jesus is the end of the law. He is the teleos. He is the purpose. It's the whole of what all of creation is focused upon. We get the word telescope from it. Teleos. Where we see from afar, uh, we see something that's afar, close up. Jesus is the end of the law. He is the whole purpose for everything. Is that we would come into God's presence. Okay? So, that's, I believe, that your nephew... I don't, I don't know him and I don't know the story, but it's about what the psalmist cried. You know, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord. God is good all the time. So that's what I think that's about, that we can pray for a Mercedes, and because we don't get it doesn't mean that God isn't on the throne and that he isn't um, true to his word. He's actually giving us that which we need most not that which we desire. And sometimes what we desire seems good. And it, and it can be good. To have uh, someone healed of a disease is a good thing, right? Because there's a, a removal of suffering. Who wants to suffer? Who wants to have suffer on somebody, right? Rather, we are suffering on somebody, right? So uh, my understanding, and we were teaching on Friday night, somebody asked a question about blessings and curses, right? And that blessing is actually spoken. God speaks a blessing upon us. He spoke creation into existence. And I love the way that the Australians capture the word blessing. Right? So when they're uh, greeting or uh, departing, they give a blessing. It's good on you, mate. Or good on you, mate. Right? Good on you. That's what God is all about. It's blessings. So... <clears throat> that we don't fully see how that is occurring does not mean that it is not. Um, and, I, and as a result of that, that means that I should always be praying and that I should pray for healing. And there are going to be times when um, in praying for healing, God does the miraculous, but he does it not for that individual per se or that individual situation per se, but for the good of that person and all. In other words, God's will be done. 
So that's that's the way I read that, and I and I because I drill down on this, right? It's like okay, let's let's look at another example of where we see that. Um, let me pull up uh, one of my cheat sheets here. So if I if I look at my margin notes, I want to see where you see that same uh, ask, and and I'll do it. Um, so. questions of God and possibly drawing him closer to God. And so there's some... Yeah. What about the mother? I was worried about her. There's a... Uh, Lee Strobel wrote a book. Uh, he wrote uh, The Case for Christ 
was the first one he wrote, and the second one was The Case for Faith. And uh, so he's an apologist. He's looking at, and he approaches it from a legal perspective, where he is looking at the evidence and what the evidence says. Is there a case for faith? And that's kind of the question that you're asking. And the example that um, Lee Strobel gives is of a guy by the name of Charles Templeton. I think it's Charles. Um, and he was a, an evangelist that was a contemporary of, of Billy Graham. And he was actually a better speaker and able to garner more uh, fervor in an evangelistic crowd than Graham was. And they came up through ranks together, and Templeton was to be the, uh, the world evangelist, and Billy Graham uh, was not, right? And they both came to a crisis in faith, which is exactly what you're describing. Uh, Charles Templeton looked at the condition of the world, and he said, how can a loving God allow a child in Africa who's done no harm to anybody die of starvation? That just, I can't believe that a loving God would allow an innocent child to die. And as a result of that, Charles Templeton rejected God. He said, I cannot believe in that God. This was a man who had all the training, all the theology, the whole thing. He comprehended, he could not apprehend. Billy Graham came to the same crisis. And he chose to believe, even though he didn't understand it and couldn't resolve it. That was cognitive dissonance. It was, um, he could not resolve these two understandings about who God was, his goodness, and yet the presence of evil in the world, the problem of evil. And he chose to believe because of the revelation. That's what God asks us to do. As a result of that choosing to believe, Billy Graham, we know the story. He became a great evangelist. So we have crisis of faith. And I'd say everybody in here has a crisis of faith. And when you come to a passage like this, it becomes right in your face. If I ask God, and I believe that it is good that my nephew be healed, or my son be healed, or my wife be healed, or myself be healed, and that does not occur according to my plan, is God good? Can he be trusted? Job had the same trial. Um, Peter had the same trial. Yeah, yeah. So I can never give a satisfactory answer because in my view of the world, I can't say it is okay for a child to die. However, I choose to trust God because I think there's probably more to the story than I'm able to stick into my little noogan or that God has chosen to reveal. He doesn't tell us that. So finally, the very next verse <laughs> yep. of the key around it. Uh, so obviously, 14 is uh, yep. 14. But then 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's correct. You know, and I don't know if that's listed in the previous verses, but I, I, I doubt it. But it, it actually is. 
right? So this is comprehension, apprehension should affect how you live. In other words, that's your behavioral response, obedience. Um, you choose to follow God and to do that which he declares is good. You, you love him and keep his commandments. So that is that is what's being required. Discipleship is not cheap. It is not easy. Um, and so in my workplace right now, I'm dealing with uh, an issue with an employee that could end badly. I hate these kind of things. I hate conflict. I hate drama. <clears throat> and I'm able to clearly separate out issues of competency from issues of behavior. And I, all of a sudden I realize the needle the compass is going, this isn't a competency issue, this is a behavioral problem. Behavioral changes are hard and take time. Discipleship is hard and it takes time. And it's going to be tested. So it's a it's a it's a trial of faith. And that's not necessarily bad. Because when your faith is tried, what does Paul say in Romans chapter five? Right? I'm gonna I'm just gonna read this without editorial. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So, the bottom line of that is that this is about communion with God. And you actually see all of that in chapter 14. You see that Jesus is in the Father, and we are in Him. How does that occur? It occurs through the Spirit, which is exactly what He goes into next. He says, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper, that He may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. The world's not going to get this communion with God. It says the world cannot receive him because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So how is it that Christ is present today? So we see in John chapter 14 several um, promises of Jesus' return. We see uh, an eschatological promise that he'll return uh, as the conquering king. I believe that you can make those kinds of uh, interpretive judgments uh, where he says, you know, I'm going away and I'm coming back. Uh, he, but he also talks about that he's not going to leave his orphans. So that means that um, just as he is in the Father and the Father is in him and we are in him, therefore we can have communion with the Father, that occurs through the triune God actually being present with us. And so we understand that in uh, terminology. How did, in the Old Testament, how did God uh, have presence with his people? How was he present? 
if you read the Exodus story, that what happened was is that God delivered his people and he delivered them for what purpose? So that they could commune with him. And they come to the mountain and the people say, well, you're too scary. But God still reveals himself and he gives them a pattern of how he can dwell with them in the tabernacle. And that we understand that the actual dwelling of God was separated by a curtain. Well, in when Christ died, he actually tore that curtain. He removed the separation between us and God. So he had to go away. He had to go to the Father in order to accomplish this. And now we have direct access to the very mercy seat of God. That's what it says in Hebrews chapter 4. Right? So that that separation has been torn, and we now are able to be present in him. In fact, we're even called the, the temple or tabernacle of God, where he dwells in us. That's what's being talked about here, about the Holy Spirit. So you actually see the, the triune God fully revealed, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and it's about that communion, that personal ministry of Christ to us, that he died for us individually. That he was raised for our life. My eternal life is in him. That's what it tells me in the Bible, right? And that I actually have this access. So when I am in accord with God's will, and I am communing with him, he's actually answering those prayers. It's a dialogue. It isn't a one-way, you know, I put my quarter in the machine, I want my Coke. Um, it's not a quarter anymore. <laughs> but... Uh, it, you know, God is not like that. He's not separate and disconnected from us now. He's together with. And that's, that's a really important thing that Jesus is saying, I'm going such that I can remove that separation and you can be together with. And that you will actually have the spirit of God revealing who I am, the spirit of truth, to testify so that your heart can cry out, Abba, Father. It doesn't say Abba, Father. That's a different letter, but... Go ahead. Well, somebody brought up last week uh, at 12 points out that uh, literally I say to you, he lose me the works that I do shall he do also and greater works than these he shall do because I go to my father. Right. So not even I mean, he's really saying that you can <laughs> with the spirit do even more works than Jesus did. Right. That's a little bit mind-boggling to me. Uh, well, it is, and it and it wasn't. It, it is mind-boggling, and it isn't so much about that the lenser was left, the leper was cleansed, leper was cleansed, uh, leper was cleansed, or that uh, the man who was lame was given mobility, or that the man who had been buried in a tomb for more than three days was raised from the dead. Those are miraculous works, right? They were beyond. They were supernatural. So is Jesus saying, yeah, you now can strap on a uh, red cape and go flying. You can <laughs> leap tall buildings in a single bound and stop a locomotive. No, that's, that's not what's happening. What was Jesus' purpose? What was he doing with that? He was bringing life. And guess what? Because of his death and because of our comprehension, apprehension, and having a life of obedience, we're bringing that life to the whole world. 
We are his ambassadors, right? So we have a responsibility. And in that sense, um, one man's death can save the whole world. What did Jesus tell us to do? He told us to go and teach, make disciples. And the key in that, in, that, in that verse that talks about the greater works is the because. Because now he's going to the Father. Right. Jesus says he's going to the Father. He he's not talking about his ascension. Right. He's talking about his going back to the Father through death. Right. And so all of that, the uh, gospel of redemption is in there. The greater work that, it, that we now participate in because of his death and resurrection yes. and the sending of the Spirit. All of that yes. is in that because. That's right. And that is the greater work. All of that. Well, earlier you brought up Billy Graham. One thing yeah. I picked up of this is Jesus had a spirit in us that was you know, maybe a countrywide, you know, and his disciples went out to change the world. But a guy like Billy Graham, you know, who I have a great deal of respect for, and others around that right? So, right. But, I mean, they've really, literally spoke to millions, you know. They yeah. have. Um, and other than that, I can't justify how. <laughs> we can do better than Jesus Christ. So, well, um, lives are changed, right? Um, and I often hold of myself up as an example. Um, when I was at my worst, I was, uh, you know, your peers in, in high school would say, yeah, I think he's going to grow up to be the president of the corporation. Mm -hmm. They, they uh, voted me most likely um, to die first and take others with me. Right? So, <laughs> I'm serious. And, and, that, and that weighed heavy on me. Right? It's like, wow. Is that who I am? The Lord has said, you will, you will live forever and take others with you. Yes. <laughs> Amen. So, um, lives are changed. And they're changed without uh, logical reason. There's no, nothing that logically would have said, oh, this person's life is going to be changed in such a way that they'll share the life of God with another person. You know the story of Billy Graham, if you read the history, there was a, a very humble man that shared the gospel. And you watch that chain all the way up and how that affected so many people. And yet, that person had no visibility into what God was doing. That's why you know, we don't know what good is. We don't know how your brothers struggle with faith is going to impact those around him. We don't know how your testimony to the goodness of God is going to impact those around you. God doesn't choose to reveal that. But I believe that he is doing that which he intended to do from the beginning of creation, not just corporately for all of humanity, but individually, personally, for me, for you. Right? So that's what I think is going on here. And that he doesn't leave us in orph as orphans in that. So this is a really hard place. Here we are, 2,000 years removed from the eyewitness account. And yet people are still being changed today. How is that happening? It's because God is not absent. He's present. How is he present? He lives within us. Because I know I can face tomorrow, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Okay? That's the, the song. 
So that's what's going on here. That we have the spirit of truth. It's not a spirit of the world. And that he abides with us and will be in us. Because that, that separation was removed. And that we are no longer alone, but Jesus will come to us. So this is not just the future, yeah, he's coming back on the cloud as the conquering king. This is the present. That he is with us today. That we are never apart from him. You know, so we memorialize this in poems, right? There's the footsteps poem. We've seen that. Where in the, the darkest moment of my life, I only see one set of steps. Where's God? He's right there. That's his steps, not mine. So we see that. And because he lives, we will live also. So this is the promise. So you're looking at what types of principles, what types of timeless truths we want to take away here. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. How will we see him? They would see him literally, figuratively. Thomas would get to put his hand in Jesus' hand. But we'll also see him, know him through the Spirit. And then he makes a promise. Because I live, you will live also. And I would say this is a timeless truth. This isn't uh, you know, bound in culture and time that it was only for the apostles. This is for us too. The very resurrected life of Jesus when he rose from the dead, never to die again, is eternal life. And we are partakers in his life. We are participants and in him. It's not a different kind of life that he gives us. It's his very life, which is eternal life. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Let's go ahead and uh, close here. Well, let's do 21. Okay. Uh, he who has my commandments and keeps them is one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. How is he going to disclose himself? By the way, that's a promise. That's a, that's a timeless truth. So that's interesting. I mean, it may even be linked to the obedience thing of the uh, He loves me. He should be loved by my father, and I will love him, and will disclose myself to him. So what, what is the disclosure? What, what is... So Jesus wants us so to love him, and then he'll disclose himself. <coughs> so uh, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? So God wants to reveal himself to us. What does he want to reveal? He wants to reveal, one, the aspects of his, his nature that are communicable to us, Right? They're created in his image. So we need to understand who we are in him. Um, and he will also uh, reveal himself as to what is the nature of truth. That the world tells you something different. The world tells you there's a lot of ways to God. There's only one way to God. So, and, and we really do need Dan because Bob's giving me the evil eye. Um, but I. I'll point out, when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that one verse has no variant reading, right? What he's talking about is he's talking about our problem is one of separation from God 
that our mind is corrupted, our heart is corrupted, and that ultimately we die. So he said that he is the way. He, he's resolving that problem of separation from God. He is the truth. When, when you are struggling, what does that mean, that he'll disclose himself to us? That means that we will know the truth. The truth is Jesus Christ as he was revealed. No matter what the world says, that's the truth. And that ultimately, he solves the problem of our separation from God. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And that's what's being disclosed. And that's the promise, right? And we get to share that. It doesn't become untrue or corrupted um, in our sharing that, that statement. This is what God said. I believe it. Do you? That's where we're at. This is the, the test of faith. This is apprehension. And this is walk of life behavior. Let's go ahead and close here. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to again come to your word. And, and actually we're struggling with some of the um, hardest parts in this passage, Lord, uh, that you desire us to come to you in prayer and to ask of you. Um, and we know that you hear us and that when we're in accord with your will, that you always answer in a way that we can understand and agree with. But then when we don't understand and agree, it doesn't mean that you're not good and true, that, uh, or even that we're not in accord. We just don't necessarily get it. So Lord, that's a, that's a thing to struggle with. And also the whole issue about uh, how the Holy Spirit uh, and you, Lord Jesus, Father, how you um, come to us, how you have, uh, how can you be three in one, all of that issue, the essence of, of who you are, uh, and yet that you are present with us, in us, and present with us um, through your Son, flesh and blood. We wrestle with those things, and Lord, we just ask for clarity. We ask for your spirit to reveal to us what's going on. Lord, we ask for your protection and uh, provision for us. We live in a crazy world and wicked world and we ask that you protect us that you keep us safe, that you provide um, Lord in many ways supernaturally for us we thank you for that and we thank you so much for your service, ask you to be with Bob this morning and uh, others as they minister here in this local church today thank you Lord Jesus for all this we pray in your name